What's up, family? You are tuned into Law and Disorder, a podcast where we expose the cracks in our system, agitate for resistance, and collectively build a new world in which all of us can thrive. From KPFA Radio and the Pacifica Network, I'm your host, Kat Brooks. It's been just over a year now since the Supreme Court struck down Roe v. Wade, effectively legalizing a war against reproductive health care access in the United States. Since the strike down, we've seen an avalanche of laws aimed at restricting and controlling the choices women and people with wombs make about their bodies, which makes our conversation today incredibly timely. We are not going to be focused on the U.S. today. However, we're turning our attention to the role of the carceral state as a leading threat to reproductive justice in so-called Canada. Our guest this morning is Martha Painter. Martha holds a PhD in nursing and is a registered nurse providing abortion and postpartum care. She's the founder and chair of Wellness Within, an organization for health and justice. Her book is Abortion to Abolition, Reproductive Justice in Canada, and it is illustrated by Julia Hutt. Hello, Martha. Thank you so much for joining us. Hello, Kat. Thanks for having me. My pleasure. Let's jump right in. I think we have to start with providing context, right, political context for my listeners about the state of things in Canada. Can you start off by talking about, and correct me if I say this wrong, the 1988 Morgan decision? Um, Mm -hmm. uh, Did I say it right? No. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Correct me, please. Uh, Yeah. So the 1988 uh, Supreme Court decision in the R.V. Morgenthaler case. Uh Aha. So Dr. Henry Morgenthaler was a longtime champion for uh, abortion freedom in Canada, a family doctor. He came to Canada as a a refugee post uh, surviving the Holocaust, and he dedicated his life to advancing abortion access, both clinically as a family physician providing clinical services and as a political advocate. So that case, um, that case was against him um, for his work. He had opened clinics in in various places and was tried actually three times for what was then the crime of providing abortion without uh, the approval of what were known as therapeutic abortion committees, so physician committees that would approve whether or not a patient was worthy of care and for providing it outside of hospital. And um, three times he was tried, three times a jury refused to convict him. The uh, value in Canada really uh, espouses the the freedom to govern your body. So by 1988, our charter of uh, rights and freedoms um, our constitution had stipulated that there can be no state um, harm that denies a person or state action that denies a person life, liberty, and security of the person. And denial of abortion care is a threat to the security of, of your own self. So after that decision, um, ruling in his favor, abortion was completely decriminalized in Canada. So from 1988 to today, we have had what is arguably the most progressive on paper um, legal regime uh, governing abortion in the world. There are no gestational age limits. There are no requirements for waiting periods, no requirements for parental consent, um, et cetera, et cetera. There's, there's nothing. Uh, abortion is a health service. It's not really any different than a prescription for antibiotics or a knee arthroplasty. 
It's a service that you get and the people who provide it to you must be competent in that care. Um, but other than that, uh, it's, it's just care. And of course it's paid for by the state. So that's the, the regime. And then very, very importantly, we only had medication abortion mifepristone approved in 2015 by our regulator health Canada. And it only really came to market in 2017 uh, again, paid for by the state. But that delay, you know, Europe had uh, mifepristone, RU486, since the 80s. So that delay in getting access to medication ab- abortion was really very problematic on the ground. So on paper, we don't have any restrictions, but then on the ground, without access to medication abortion, you're traveling to these uh, urban centers to get procedural abortion care. And Canada, I'm sure you know, is a very big country physically. We don't have a ton of people, but it's a very big geography. And so travel and all of the social and economic and political and private costs of making that travel happen made abortion very inaccessible. So the introduction of medication abortion in 2015, 2017 on the ground really changed everything yet again. That's a, a good segue, actually, to my next question, because you just, you know, laid out how it's completely decriminalized, and yet and still you lay out in the introduction, there are still barriers to abortion that exist in Canada. What still needs to change and for whom? So the number one issue, honestly, is that people need to know about medication abortion. Um, there was a recent poll, very recently, and uh, Linda Pharma, the, the pharmaceutical company that produces it, um, found that 55% or so, my numbers might be a tiny bit off, people don't even know it exists. They don't know the difference between uh, abortion medication and the uh, emergency contraception medication options. So we haven't done a very good job educating the public about the existence of this uh, form of care, of self-care. And we also, because we're members of the public too, haven't done a great job educating healthcare providers. And so healthcare providers don't know that this is something that they can prescribe for their patients. Any primary health prescriber, nurse practitioner, family doctor can prescribe mifepristone and they don't even know that they can. So that's a huge problem. The biggest issue is informational. Of course, this also gets very clouded by bombardment from the U.S. in terms of your media. And so people get all this messaging from American television, social media about um, Dobbs and and the situation post-Dobbs, and they think that that somehow applies here, right? Uh, Which, of course, it does not. And then the, um, really the, the other issue that is such a frustrating one is that we've had medication abortion publicly funded almost since it was out the gates. And yet we don't have contraception publicly funded. And so, you know, it's, it's fine. The state will pay $2,000 for you to have a procedural abortion every month, but they won't pay 30 bucks for you to have a pack of birth control pills. It's very, very frustrating for us on the ground. Um, And we have made some incredible gains just this spring with British Columbia, one of our bigger provinces, um, making the shift. So now 
most forms of contraception are universally covered by uh, provincial health insurance in in that province. So um, just to try to simplify our system for uh, American listeners in Canada, we talk about the Canadian system, but actually every single province administers its own system. So it's the provincial budget that pays for uh, health uh, costs of all sorts, whether it be in hospital, um, physician care, or like this, a, a prescription drug product. Martha, I was I was trying to find it in the introduction, but what you just said maybe the explanation if I read it correctly, it's abortion is not accessible though for right non citizens or visiting scholars, mm-hmm. et cetera. Can you talk about mm-hmm. that? And is that tied to some of the anti immigrant sentiment that we know is pervasive in Canada? So exactly. So because this care is paid for by the province, you have to have what's called a provincial health card to access it. There are some exceptions. Um, So First Nations people, the RCMP, military, they are covered by a federal, um, a similar program that, that operates federally. But basically, if you don't have legal status in the province where you are located or territory, then you won't have your care of any type funded. Um, And this is obviously a huge problem. So it uh, is an issue for uh, migrant labor. It's an issue for, we have so many international students in this country who sometimes um, stay with us after they're they're finished their student visas. Um, Sometimes when they're here, even as students with papers, they don't have a health insurance uh, option that's covering them. Um, There are uh, all, all kinds of people who are living in this country who don't have status and are serving the country, working for uh, us here and um, yeah, our, our denied care. So that is one of the greatest priorities for the reproductive justice movement in this country to make that shift, obviously in the domain of reproductive health, but in general, because frankly, all health um, has an impact on those reproductive justice principles of being able to decide um, when and if to have children and also to be able to parent the children we do decide to have in safety uh, and, and sustainable communities. So you can't do that if you can't access healthcare. You are listening to Law and Disorder. I am your host, Kat Brooks, in conversation with Martha Painter about her book, Abortion, Abolition, Reproductive Justice in Canada, illustrated by Julia Hutt. Martha, the first chapter is titled Beyond Abortion. What do you mean by that? And you could segue into um, that historically, the 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 movement for access abortion has been a white feminist led movement, and and not sufficient to to include black women, indigenous women, poor women, etc. Yes, and and to to begin with that, uh, I I want to position myself. I am a white uh, queer woman, um, and. This this book opens, and, and the reason I wanted to write the book was because I felt like within the abortion movement in Canada, we're so committed and um, so 
fulfilled by our work and we've come so far and uh, and we have these just as as clinicians dedicated to this work we have these black holes in our understanding of what is simultaneously happening in public institutions so like healthcare the prison system in Canada is an entirely publicly funded system Everyone who works in the prison system is a public servant. And um, we're doing all this work to to advance and and make these these tweaks to continuously improve abortion care. And yet people, women, trans, non-binary people, all people who are incarcerated, are experiencing the most hellish of deprivation, human rights violations, um, the, the denial of the most basic care. Uh, and we just, we don't even know about it because these people are made invisible. Prisons are, are generally located far out of sight. You know, that's a principle that, uh, Dr. Angela Davis taught us so long ago that prisons exist to, to, uh, make social harm invisible and certainly not to deal with it. And I felt like that was a real, just, that didn't make sense that our movement hadn't evolved and hadn't um, embraced that consciousness that the Black feminist movement in the U.S. has has made so um, apparent and so obvious in the U.S. that the, the movement for prison abolition is part of um, any reproductive freedom future. Uh, so that's why I wanted to write the book. And I'd been doing prison work for about 10 years when I, when I wrote the book. Um, and it's, it's so consistent that people who are either clinicians or activists or educators or organizers, people in the movement will so often say, I had no idea. I had never thought of that. Um, and feel such shame. But I mean, if it's purposely kept, if it's institutionally designed to keep you unaware of what's going on, then um, that, that's understandable. Um, and there's so much work that we can be doing part. And I, I look at this from a healthcare provider perspective. We have so many obligations as healthcare providers that put us at odds with the carceral state. And yet we have longstanding um, symbiosis with uh, carceral institutions, the police, the prisons. We work alongside them. Um, we reinforce them. We fear them. We kowtow to them. Instead of serving our patients as we are bound to ethically to do. So, um, yeah, that's that's the idea behind the book and how it opens. That you know we have to look beyond abortion. We've made incredible gains in abortion care in Canada. And now it's time to devote our energies to other really pressing fights. I want to tug on this thread a little bit more, and you might feel like you're answering the the same question again, but I'm going to ask it more directly. Elaborate on a how the movement for prison abolition is connected to the movement for reproductive justice. What are the ways that imprisonment impacts every aspect of reproductive justice, making it almost impossible for it to occur inside of the carceral institution. So you start at the beginning, 
right? When you are admitted to um, custody, you will have your clothes taken from you and you will be strip searched. So we start right off, right out the gates with uh, state rape, uh, sexual assault by public servants of a, a human being. <laughs> and then when you are in this um, institution, you are separated from the children you already have, because most of the people in prison are parents. We talk a lot about, you know, the, the um, accelerating incarceration of women and how most incarcerated women are mothers, but most incarcerated men are fathers too. Um, and it's, it's important that we not forget how the violations and trauma of the prison system on men um, create longstanding and uh, webs of trauma for so society generally. So anyway, you're in this institution, you're separated from your kids. These are the kids that you chose to have and the kids that you are unable to parent and who are there then traumatized by separation from you. In Canada, the prison system is a reincarnation of the residential school regime, which was a colonial project to, um, well, a, a genocidal colonial project um, to destroy indigenous peoples across the country. And, um, so when those all closed, they were all closed by the 90s, uh, prisons expanded and over 50% of the women in federal prison are indigenous, which is like just bananas. 4% of the population in Canada is indigenous. And so I think, you know, people in Canada are very familiar with um, anti-Black racism and mass incarceration in the U.S. And it's true, the U.S. has an astonishing rate of incarceration. But when we don't examine and when we don't talk about the prison system in Canada, we don't um, have that awareness that in Canada, our rate of incarceration of Indigenous people far surpasses what's happening in the U.S., far surpasses that ratio of racism. So you're inside, you're separated from your family, you're also separated from any um, potential fertility, right? You uh, either don't have um, access to a, a heterosexual spouse or partner, or if you're in a queer relationship and family, you don't have access to the help that you need to advance your fertility, um, whether that be assisted reproduction or friends or whatever. Um, so you are denied family making. And then... In the context of the prison, we have very clear evidence that despite um, legislation that demands the state provide uh, adequate healthcare services, despite international law, the Mandela rules that um, state the minimum specifications of what's acceptable in terms of uh, prisoner access to healthcare, despite this, prisoners are denied basic healthcare. Uh, they are denied PAPs. They have higher rates of cervical cancer. They are denied um, prenatal care. They are, and then when they do go for care, they are subjected to strip searching before and after they leave the building. 
They are accompanied by guards, more often than not, who are men, who are watching them, uh, eyes and ears, watching and listening, constant violation of their uh, health privacy. Um, and then they are physically violated, shackled, while they are experiencing health procedures. It just really, it goes on and on. Um, and we, in Canada, we continue again, we compare ourselves to the U.S. in terms of abortion. We compare ourselves in, into the U.S. In, in terms of mass incarceration. But as a result, we don't realize we actually have one of the highest rates of incarceration in the world. But because it's nothing compared to the U.S., then we think we're off the hook. We think it's minor. We think it's hardly anyone. Um, so I, I hope that answers your question. It's, it's so many dimensions of the carceral experience are a constant violation of bodily autonomy. You don't get to control your body. And that is the fundamental anchor in reproductive justice. And then before we move on, I, I, I think the, the last point that I'd like you to touch upon is why no movement, right? No movement for social justice or the liberation of any people can be a full, whole, or complete movement if we are not including our loved ones, our relatives, our family members, our community members that are locked in cages. Uh, I think that this is really why we can look at the, that carceral impulse in feminism um, the, the, the impulse that we will solve our, our problems with gender violence through more uh, entanglement with the criminal legal system. And we see how that just does not work. That does not work. It ends up punishing the most marginalized among us. And so, for instance, in, in just the, the past 10 years, the time that I've been doing this work, we see the numbers of Indigenous women behind bars going up every year, even though we know that this is uh, something that the Truth and Reconciliation Commission has denounced, the National Inquiry in Murdered and Missing Indigenous Women has denounced, but we see it accelerating. And we have to look within the feminist movement at the things that we have demanded and how that has ended up punishing the most marginalized people. When you demand harsher, longer, harder sentences and um, consequences for people for violence, you fail to um, see how the most marginalized people among us re rely on violence for survival sometimes. Um, and I also want to note that one of the things here in Canada that we also don't have uh, in comparison to the U.S., that I think allows us to really just um, avoid accountability is we have incredibly bad data. So we, we do have some data about Indigenous, non-Indigenous, but every other marker, queer, Black, brown, newcomer, we don't have the data. And so how easy is it without the data uh, to say, oh, well, I guess we don't have a problem. You are listening to Law and Disorder. I am your host, Kat Brooks. I am in conversation with Martha Painter about her book, Abortion, Abolition, Reproductive Justice in Canada, illustrated by Julia Hutt. Martha, you choose to make your political points through storytelling. 
why did you choose this style? You could have just done research and citations, but there's stories and there's illustrations. Why, why this tactic? Well, um, so I, I, I do a lot of work in prisons and uh, a couple of years ago I was um, doing this workshop series with the Canadian Association of Elizabeth Fry Societies and elders. And um, we were going into the federal prisons for women uh, and doing workshops about reproductive rights and how they intersected with um, criminalization. Because, you know, people in prison, they don't have the internet. They can't Google what their rights are. Um, and, you know, there have been so many changes that were really important. For instance, the, the uh, approval of medication abortion, but so many. So we wanted to go in and, and do these workshops and at the same time find out what really mattered to the women inside, to the people inside the prisons designated for women, um, so that we could uh, really direct the agenda of the Canadian Association of Elizabeth Fry Societies to respond to those needs. And anyway, so what I have found in, in the years that I've been doing work in prisons like this is that people like stories. They, that, you know, they um, identify with them. They can see themselves in that story. That's not, it might even be somebody they know. And so that works as a way to talk about things. And also they like pretty things. So um, the, the prisons are just hellscapes and it's so important. It's always been so important to me when I go in to bring pretty things, um, images, uh, leather pants, just whatever, something pretty. Um, and so it was so important that the book be pretty. And that's why it's illustrated and there's kind of these portraits for all of the, the people or at least the, the players in, in each of the stories. All right. Well, I want to walk through some of these tenants of reproductive justice. And the way that we'll do it is I'll have you define the tenant and then um, tell one of the stories from the section. So chapter one is bodily autonomy. Um what what is meant by that term and how does it go further than simply a fight for quote unquote choice? Why is choice not sufficient? Um, you know, I'll, I'll, uh, I'll just, I'll read for a second from the book. Okay, um, great. Bodily autonomy is the first principle of reproductive rights. It has long been synonymous with choice. You should have the right to choose what happens to your body for decades choice was the rallying cry of abortion activism, the fight to be able to choose not to continue a pregnancy. But choice implies a menu of equivalent or at least acceptable options. And, quote, the privilege to exercise discrimination in the marketplace among them. It skips over the problem of not having options. The rhetoric of choice is individualistic, but available options are the products of broad social contexts and systemic structures of inequality. It is not a person's fault to be met with no choices or so-called bad choices. It is a result of a social algorithm of privileges and oppression. Choice sounds easy, even flippant. The reality of reproductive decision-making is much more complicated. Contraception fails. Relationships become abusive. Jobs are precarious. The environment is in catastrophe. The police are killing children. And so this, you know, critique of choice language, I'm, I've stopped reading now, is... Um, that really came from the black feminist movement, recognizing that um, this individualistic and, and frankly, neoliberal rhetoric 
didn't make sense when you are facing layers of um, discrimination and and structural oppression. Um, So bodily autonomy is that idea that you get to govern yourself, this this, um, security of the person that we have in, in the Canadian Charter. And you have to have that before you have all the other things, right? Um, so that's why I chose to start the book there. And then you walk through a few examples of, of bodily autonomy. I'm going to skip to one of the last things you talk about, and that's sex work and bodily mm. autonomy. And if mm. you could talk about, I mean, they do this here in the United States, and it's a fight that you know I, I, I and others regularly have here in Oakland, um, the conflation of sex work with human trafficking. If you could talk about how that plays out in Canada, and then just sort of segue into the story of Terry Jean Bedford and her, her folks. Yeah, so so for example, you know, I was talking earlier about the Canadian Association of Elizabeth Fry Societies and how they brought me in to lead this workshop series. And one of the things that came out of that was uh, CAFES, Canadian Association of Elizabeth Fry Societies, finally being able to say, actually, one of the principles of our work has to be complete support for the decriminalization of all sex work. And that was a shift from their earlier positions that they got to because they listened to what people were saying inside. Um, so of course, sex work and the freedom to, to work um, in sex aligns with reproductive justice because you should get to do whatever you want with your body. And uh, trafficking is when you don't have control over your body. But there's trafficking in workers in the strawberry fields. This is not um, synonymous with sex work at all. And we had this um, really fierce uh, litigant, so so, um, Terry Jean Bedford, who uh, took on the country and um, demanded that sex work be removed from the criminal code in Canada. So that that lawsuit was in 2013 because the criminalization of sex work only made life unsafe for people working in sex work. It didn't prevent trafficking. Um, It made uh, workers at risk of violence, um, at risk of uh, wage theft um, and uh, at risk of precarity and poverty. And um, yeah, so, so she fought. And what's disappointing, she won. But what happened was the Supreme Court said, okay, you know, you got to scratch the existing laws from the criminal code. And in Canada, our criminal code is federal. Only the feds can make criminal um Uh, yeah, criminal legislation of this type. Um, But then the federal government went on to make laws in response that continued to criminalize um, the purchase. So kind of that Scandi model. And that just isn't far enough. That continues to push things underground. Um, if your clients are criminalized for seeking your services, well, that doesn't really sound very safe at all, does it? So, um, yeah. 
so it's kind of a disappointing, it, it really did not go far enough. Um, and so the fight continues, but I will tell you, I don't know if you caught this, but we had this fascinating case. Um, just, I guess it was last week. Um, so this, this uh, woman in Nova Scotia, she, her client refused to pay. He owed her about uh, $2,000 and he refused to pay. And so she took him to small claims court and demanded that he pay her. And the Elizabeth Fry Society in Nova Scotia supported her and uh, she won. And so the adjudicator, like he said, you know, this is a contract. I see the text messages right here. This is a contract. You failed to pay. And your argument that you shouldn't have to pay because what the contract you, you set up with this woman is illegal. Well, too bad. You're gonna pay her anyway. <laughs> so wow. it's it's actually kind of amazing. This is like precedent setting, um, really important for uh, sex workers going forward to be able to demand that the state support them in um, reclaiming lost wages. So anyway, we're making gains, but we just this incredible case, the Bedford decision, it just didn't go far enough. All right. There's, there's several other tenants, but I'm clocking time and I want to get to parenting in prison, um, which is chapter five. Um, We spoke earlier about how the prison system makes reproductive justice impossible. One of the points that, that you bring up that I, I, I am a child of an incarcerated parent. Um, you talk about it, uh, prison as a two-sided violation of the right to parent. I'm wondering if you can expand on that for us. So you are, are both denied the right to be with your children, and your children are denied the right to be with you. And this is a harm that we cannot do to children. You know, Canada signed on to the United Nations Convention on the Rights of the Child uh, over 30 years ago. And every policy in this country has to be made in the best interest of the child. It is not in the best interest of children to be denied their primary care provider. There's no way you can argue that that makes sense. Um, And we do that without a thought. You know, we see sentencing decisions that don't even mention children. The... Children of this population are so invisible and the harm is absolutely intergenerational. Um, You know, I see, you meet people in prison who, um, it all started when they were teenagers and, um, you know, in foster care because their parents were incarcerated. And uh, of course, criminalization intersecting with racism. And so they're criminalized from a very early age. And so then they're not even able to have kids. Not only do Indigenous women, are are they hyper-policed and hyper-incarcerated, but they're incarcerated at much earlier ages and at much higher security levels. So they just don't have the opportunity to build their families. Um, And that kind of goes to the points that you make in the chapter before that, right? Which is parenting and safety. Yeah. Um. Yeah, there's uh, so many um, 
stories in the book that are just these extraordinary, uh, true stories of people having such incredible resilience and um, fight um, uh, in in them. Um, and, you know, one of the, the stories is that the, the opening story is about how um, we, the, the criminalization of drug use and um, the, the, on the one hand, we have this obsession that's really controls women or controls pregnant people. So they're, they're hyper, they're under surveillance during their pregnancy. How dare you take uh, a Tylenol? How dare you have a cup of coffee? Um, we're obsessed with denying people um, substances that could make them just bear comforts. And one of the agencies that was responsible for examining the safety of drugs in pregnancy, also mother risk, also went on to participate in um, the criminalization, the the false lab reports to criminalize parents who had used, uh, as if they had been using illegal substances. Anyway, we have these, these intersections between the state um, and its surveillance of people uh, without this understanding um, that kids need their parents, they need their moms. Um, and uh, this, this lack of uh, ref- reflection about how these state institutions continue to replicate those genocidal actions of what we uh, imagine is early Canada. Um, that's over this um, process of, of breaking apart Indigenous families and communities um, remains very contemporary, very active in our health institutions, policing institutions, and so forth. So Martha, the, the, the answer to the Crossville State uh, ending the carceral state's uh, uh, impact on reproductive justice is, of course, to end the carceral state. But short of that, as we're walking that road, what shifts can and need to be made inside that could better facilitate opportunities for reproductive justice inside of the walls? Oh my, I'm I'm pretty I'm pretty cynical about what can be done inside. And you know, one of the things that I go on about at length in the book is this idea, for instance, that mother-child programs are the solution. So these residential programs, there's about 10 of them in the U.S., um, where mothers live with their babies in prison, that that's the solution to this family disruption that prison causes. And I'm very critical, and a lot of my research has looked at this. And I, I think we need to be, again, it's it's the same thing as being critical about our carceral feminist impulses. You're not going to improve matters by making things harsher. And we also need to be critical of this idea that you're somehow going to soften things by bringing a baby into the prison. Um, that's not what's going to happen. <laughs> so what's going to happen is you're going to spend even more money 
on the prison system. Obviously, you have to make some fundamental changes so that a baby can go in there and that costs money. So you're investing in the carceral state instead of community. It costs about $250,000 to add a mother-child place in a prison. And imagine what a whole bunch of women could do with $250,000 a year. Um, so that's a poor investment. Before I was ever a nurse, I was an economist and I, and I can't help but run these numbers in my mind. Right. And so there's that, but then there's also the fact that these programs end up replicating, uh, another dimension of hierarchy. So of course you have the guard prisoner, um, dichotomy hierarchy within, in the prison system. But then with these programs, you create with, between the prisoners, a new hierarchy, Everybody's got kids. So it's the very privileged few that get to have their kids inside who somehow pass all the tests. And of course, they're more likely to be non-Indigenous um, because all the tests are, 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 are systemically, are, are built on racism as principles, right? So you, you deepen and um, cement and also... <sighs> put a cute face on what is actually making things worse. Um, obviously in prisons, people should not be denied access to care. Um, obviously people should be able to have visits from their kids. But the, the problem is the way to make these things, these principles, these bare minimum ethics to make them happen always results in more investment in the prisons. So, you know, we used to only have one federal prison for women in Canada. In, in Kingston, Ontario. And the women who were there said, you know, it's impossible for me to see my children. This is the, one of the hugest countries in the entire world. How is my child going to come 10,000 kilometers to come visit me for two hours on Tuesday visiting day? This is never going to happen. I'm never going to see my child. And so one of the solutions to that was to build six prisons instead of one. This is always the way it is. So we need to be very careful as feminists, um, about our, our impulses that babies will make it better, that um, you know we can we can just soften the edges of something so brutal, because we can't. And those are the words to end on. Martha Painter, thank you so much for joining us today. Y'all, you've been listening to Law and Disorder. I'm your host, Kat Brooks. Our guest today was Martha Painter. Martha holds a PhD in nursing and is a registered nurse providing abortion and postpartum care. She's the founder and chair of Wellness Within, an organization for health and justice. Her book is Abortion to Abolition, Reproductive Justice in Canada, and it is illustrated by Julia Hutt. Thanks very much, Kat. Thank you. You've been listening to Law and Disorder, a podcast where we expose the cracks in our system, agitate for resistance, and collectively build a new world in which all of us can thrive. That's it for this episode, family. You can find more information about topics and guests in this episode's show notes. Law and Disorder is produced at KPFA. That's listener-supported radio on the Pacifica Network. The show is produced by Jesse Strauss and hosted by me, Kat Brooks. Our theme music was composed by Steve Raskin of Fort Knox 5. If you like what you heard, please follow us on social media at Law and Dis, that's D-I-S, and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. 
Feel free to holler at us about something you heard or send us a show idea at lawanddisorder at kpfa.org. You can also find our content live at 8 a.m. weekdays on KPFA. That's 94.1 FM in the Bay Area. Our show and all of KPFA's programs are funded exclusively by you, the listener. And if you're in a position to support us, please donate today at kpfa.org. Take care of yourself and take care of each other. We all we got, fam.